The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, Dr. Jade Tita. Professional smarty pants and super profound. Yeah, you're going to want to hear this one. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. When you were a kid, what was your favorite type of gum? Bubblicious. Really bubblicious? Yeah, of course. Better than the big league chew? Of course. Oh, man. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking, Patty Dubbers. How are you? I'm crushing it. Awesome. Hello to everyone out there. This is a podcast called The Lab Report, brought to you by Geneva Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. Yeah, we're so grateful and so thankful for all of you that continue to tune into the show. And if you're new, welcome. Hi. And maybe head on over to iTunes or Spotify, maybe subscribe to the show, leave us some feedback, some stars, rate, review, share with your friends, things like that. Don't maybe do it. Do those things. Wow. Do it. Bossy. I mean, if you want. Yeah. If you have additional feedback, you can send that feedback to podcast at gdx.net. That's our email address. And you know, Michael, Big League Chew, how dare they train children to chew tobacco using gum? Can and you it's imagine? amazing. It's, they're still making it. How? Right? How is that possible? Right. Exactly. It's like shaved and cut up into shavings that That's look like That's and terrible. seem like chewing tobacco. How did we survive childhood? And they still have the candy cigarettes, too. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, come on. No, it's true. So, I mean, it's interesting how some times have evolved. People have evolved. Society has evolved <laughs> in so candy. many ways. Not candy. <laughs> it's still the same. So, speaking of things changing and mm-hmm. perhaps personal development, right. uh, we have a guest on today that is yeah. going to help us understand the concept of next level human. Whoa. And if he, we're speaking to Dr. Jade Tita today, and if you followed any of his work, you'll see that not only is this bodybuilder trainer, he's a genius doctor, but if you follow any of his writings, he's very philosophical. Mm-hmm. Is that how you would describe him? Philosophical? Yeah. Profound. Yeah. yeah. I would describe him as smelling salts to your soul. Whoa. I love that. That's really exactly how I feel when I read his blogs on his website. He's kind of like a bowl in a habit shop. Whoa, you are on fire today, Michael. He's kind of like a one-man routine demolition team. <laughs> oh, God. Well, Michael, you know, he is all of those things, but he's also just a hug to my heart. And instead of continually coming up with different analogies about him, why don't we just call Dr. We I know, we could be here all day. Let's just call Dr. Tita so everyone knows exactly what we're talking about here. Sounds good. So, Patty. What? Do you know we have Jay Tita on today? Oh, my God. Let me tell you about <laughs> Dr. Jay Tita. So, Dr. Jay Tita holds a doctorate degree in naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University, my alma mater, woohoo, an undergrad degree in biochemistry and many life coaching certifications. He spent 20 years in the natural health, fitness, and fat loss industry, having worked as a physician, personal trainer, wellness consultant, and nutrition coach. He is a best-selling author of numerous books, including Next Level Human, Metabolic Aftershock, and The Metabolic Effect Diet, which was ranked by Time Magazine as one of the top diet books of 2010. 
and he's also contributed to the textbook of natural medicine. Currently, he is the chief metabolic architect at Metabolic Living and founder of Next Level Human. His website, jtita.com, offers educational courses in metabolism, hormonal imbalances, mindfulness, and relationships, as well as various health blogs and videos. Dr. Tita also hosts an awesome podcast mm-hmm. called The Next Level Human, available anywhere podcasts can be found. And with that, thank you so Welcome, much. Welcome, Dr. Tita. <laughs> Michael, Patty, thank you so much <laughs> for having me. It's, it's uh, really a pleasure to be here. Well, so. it's great to meet you, sir. And, you know, I think we'll start here. Your, your most recent book and podcast share this title, Next Level Human, which I think we can all get behind. But what does that mean? And, and how does one become a next level human? Yeah, well, you know what? You know, it's one of these things, right? We None of us can really be a next level human. We're always aspiring to mm-hmm. it. But to me, um, the definition of a next level human is someone who prioritizes purpose over power and popularity. Someone who seeks to grow themselves so they can touch the world in their unique way and make the world a better place for others after they're gone. And I think this is something that um, we all can aspire to. We're all unique, you know? So I, I have never been, no one like me's ever been on the planet, nor will they be. No one like Patty's ever been on the planet, nor will anyone ever be like her. Same with Michael, same for all of you listening. And when you really think about that, you start to see that we humans have an immense opportunity to be an experience and an example for our fellow humans. And when we show up that way, instead of trying to chase popularity and be what everyone else wants us to be or chase power and certainty, then we can live a fulfilled life. And I do think that a next level human chases fulfillment rather than just happiness. And to me, fulfillment is this sort of state of being where at the end of your life, you can say, I'm proud of how I showed up, who I was and the work that I did. And to me, that is the quintessential essence of what it means to be a next level human. Oh, that's profound. It's super interesting, too, especially like with today's day and age. You know, I think the aspects of popularity and power are so uh, permeated through our culture with, you know, whether it's social media and everything else. And it's just what you're saying is uh, it's kind of a flip on everything that we see going on. So how do you feel like you're able to communicate the importance of that to, to people who might be, you know, kind of un- just involved in everything else? Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting. As humans, we, um, we can't help but be sort of self-centered, right? So all of us have a degree of narcissism in us. We are self-perpetuating. We have an ego. We see ourselves as, um, you know, sort of the center of the universe. We can't really help that. And we all are seeking in my mind, like all three of us, if we're honest, and everyone listening here, if we're honest, what we want as humans deeply is to feel like we matter, and to feel loved and to feel acknowledged. And the interesting thing about that is that what we do very wrongly, I think, is in order to achieve those things, we wrongly say, well, if I get power and if I become sort of this very powerful individual that people can see, then they're gonna acknowledge me and I'm going to matter and I can make a difference that way. But what happens is when you seek power, Power is sort of uh, all-consuming in a sense. So if you if you kind of think of the philosophy of this, imagine someone who achieves full power. What ends up happening is they end up destroying themselves because there's nothing left to be powerful over. So mm-hmm. it consumes you mm-hmm. and it sort of um, degrades you in a sense when you chase power. Popularity is the same thing. If I am trying to make Patty 
like every aspect of me, then I have to change myself for Patty. If I'm trying to make Michael love every aspect of me, I have to change myself to, uh, you know, for Michael. And what happens is I lose myself. And then once again, I destroy myself in that process. If instead I chase purpose, what it essentially says is, okay, I am going to give the thing that I seek. I am actually going to give to the world rather than seek to take from it. And when I do that, it's sort of this um, really interesting thing that happens. Ironically, in a roundabout way, I actually achieve the thing I was seeking in the first place. Mm -hmm. So when I give freely the things that I seek, I actually that's actually the only way I enhance myself and get those things coming back to me. And I think people miss that. We see this all the time, right? It's about me, 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 give, give, give. And once you realize that, no, it's not what I can take from the world. It's what I can give to it. All of a sudden you wake up and you go, wow, all this time I was out there trying to get it from other people. Mm -hmm. And when I started to give it, that's the only time I actually started to get it. We mirror that in ourselves. And I think that's a universal truth that too many humans have not realized. And it's interesting because, you know, we're all doctors and there's a lot of clinicians listening to this podcast and a lot of patients. And as it relates to optimal wellness, I think that message is so important. And again, in functional medicine, we talk about that personalized approach and just the fact that, to your point, we're all different human beings. I think that's a really great message. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you've said in the past kind of your specialty is a little bit in the vein of integrative endocrinology. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, why it's important from a clinical perspective? Yeah, well, when we and I know that the two of you know this as well, and I think probably a lot of the the listeners are sort of in tune with this. When we sort of um, put ourselves in the environment and by environment, I mean, we expose ourselves to light and to temperature changes and to all of the stress in our environment. Our metabolism is essentially taking all that information from the outside world. It's sensing it. It's then integrating all the information from the inside world, the needs of the cells, and then it is um, instituting a response. So the metabolism is nothing more than a sensing and responding apparatus. And when we look at it that way, we and we simply go, well, let me just focus on a particular supplement or a particular drug or one particular aspect of my lifestyle. It's kind of like trying to isolate a drop out of an entire ocean. It's doesn't can't make that big of a difference Mm -hmm. but then we all know as clinicians when we're working with someone we start integrating the full lifestyle and the way they are reacting emotionally to friends and family and co-workers and the way they are moving their bodies and the way they are sleeping and with the light cycles and integrating with temperature and uh paying attention to the quality and quantity of the food they eat and they're going out into the world with intention of all of these things What ends up happening is now all of a sudden we're dealing with the full holistic organism and we can actually see changes. And I do think very clearly this is something that we miss in our field. And of course, many lay people miss is that they're looking for one silver bullet. And of course, the three of us got into this field partly because we recognize this early on, that this is more than just, you know, um, reducing things down to a single element or a single mechanism. But still, because we don't know a whole lot about the metabolism, we still end up doing that and focusing on one, two or three things like just the gut. That's not really integrating things. Right. Mm -hmm. Or just, you know, sort of the brain chemistry. That's not really integrating things. And so what we need to do is realize what the metabolism is actually doing. And it is integrating 
everything and then coming up with a response to this. So I think we, because of our limited understanding, we oftentimes will try to um, isolate certain areas and we do ourselves a disservice in this way. Now, of course, it's almost impossible not to do this to some degree because we know so little about the metabolism in general. But to me, when I talk about integrative endocrinology and uh, the metab, I'm, I'm talking about the holistic aspect of the metabolism. And that means really being clear and understanding what the metabolism is. And by the way, most of us, most all of us are operating under a wrong assumption about metabolism, especially when it comes to diet and exercise, which are sort of the two big ones that sure. we sort of think about when we think about moving the metabolism. Because of course, we do have an obesity epidemic and no one has been able to make a dent in it. And so integrating and talking about the integrative approach to hormones and metabolism is the only way we're going to tackle this. And I still think we're falling well short of that. Right? Agreed. Agreed. And, and just kind of piggybacking on what you just said, we talk about the metabolism and it's constantly integrating all of this information. Well, you, you mentioned it, diets, right? So we think about our diet as kind of chemical messengers, right? To try to integrate. So we know there are many different diets out there. There's keto, there's vegan, there's pegan. Mark Hyman's new book came out. Is there a specific diet that you champion either for yourself or do, that you find yourself going back to with your clients and patients? Yes, there is. And it's the only it's the only diet that makes sense. And that is the diet that works for the individual. From my perspective, mm -hmm. I am I am diet agnostic. In fact, I cannot wait. And it'd be interesting to see what you and Michael say about this, Patty. But I can't wait until the new fad diet is the do what works for you. diet. Right. <laughs> the fact is, we just talked about this in, in the beginning, right? right, that we are each unique. Yeah. And we are finding out more and more every time I look at a research study, a, a new recent one looking at um, continuous glucose monitors and looking at how certain individuals, you can have, you know, sort of people of the same height, same weight, same genetic background, eating the same food and having very different glucose excursions and then very different hunger and craving responses to that. We, we have known for a long time that even when you look at identical twins, their metabolism is not exactly the same. Our metabolisms are very much like a fingerprint. The idea that we are seeing and acting as if there is one diet that fits all individuals is the very reason we are failing in my mind. Yeah. There is only one rule of nutrition in my mind, and that is do what works for you. Now that opens up a whole can of worms, I understand. But just because it's complicated doesn't mean we ha we ignore the truth that is staring us in the face. To me, the idea that we're going to put out a book, and by the way, I have put out books that try to treat everyone the same, is um, it is just the wrong approach. And so what we really need to be doing is teaching our clients and our patients to be metabolic detectives. They know more about or they should know more about their metabolism than we do. What we should be doing, I think, as clinicians is operating under, you know, sort of the principle of dozere, doctor as teacher and mm -hmm. teaching people to speak the language of metabolism. The metabolism doesn't speak English. It speaks metabolism. And we need to teach people to speak that language. Unfortunately, we oftentimes are operating in, in the wrong sort of uh, genre when it comes to metabolism, treating it as it's just a calculator, which would be the old conventional model, right. or treating it just like it's a chemistry set. It's not these things. It's both and a whole lot more. And if we're going to give a simple analogy to the metabolism, which we probably never should, you would probably agree with that. Yeah. But if we're going to, 
then the way to think about the metabolism is one big stress barometer. It's more like a thermostat than it is a calculator or a chemistry set. It is adaptive and reactive to everything we do. And ignoring this adaptive and reactive response and not teaching people to our patients and clients to learn how to know when the metabolism is adapting and reacting, we are unable to uh, help them find the diet that works for them. So we first have to start with the language of metabolism. What language does it speak? Now, of course, you you all you know sort of work for a company that has made its living sort of doing this, trying to understand at a more objective level the language of metabolism. And but we also can do this at a very subjective level, understanding things like hunger and cravings and the you know how these things are impacting in energy and sleep and mood and motivation and exercise performance and exercise recovery and libido and signs and symptoms. All of these are the expressions of the metabolism speaking its language. We should be choosing our food, our exercise, our biorhythms, all of these things in relation to these signals and teaching people how to use them. Just as a, an example, because I know it can seem a little bit, you know, um, not really, uh, you know, clear when I talk about it like that. But just think about it like this. If we want to help our clients or our patients figure out what diet works for them, then for me, I'm going to say we want the diet that when you have a particular meal, let's say breakfast, whether you choose not to eat, whether you choose oatmeal and berries or whether you choose bacon and eggs. What I want to know is when you eat that particular meal, does it keep your what I would call heck or schmeck in check, your hunger, your energy, your cravings, your sleep and mood. When you eat that for the next six hours or so, four to six hours, do you feel clear headed? Uh, do you feel without hunger? Do you feel energy stable and predictable? Are you without cravings? Are you functioning at a high level? And then over weeks and months, as you choose those same meals, is it also helping you attain and maintain optimal body composition? And then when you go see your doctor and run blood labs and laboratory vitals, is it optimizing those vitals? So from my perspective, if it keeps hunger, energy and cravings in check, that particular meal and the way you're eating, if it helps attain and maintain optimal body composition, and it moves your vitals and laboratory measurements into the optimal zones, that is the right diet for you regardless. I don't care if it's Twinkies and cheesecake. Now, mm -hmm. I think we would all agree that is never probably <laughs> going to be the case for somebody. Right. But if it was, then that is the right diet for them. So this idea that everyone should be intermittent fasting now and everyone should be doing keto now and mm -hmm. everyone should be doing pegan now and all this stuff to me is in, in, entirely missing the point. So hopefully that sort of understands where I, I'm coming at this from this. The diet that works for you is the right diet. And here's what's very upsetting about metabolism. It changes. So the diet that works for you <laughs> pre-menopause, let's say, is right. not going to be the diet that works for you post-menopause. And the diet that worked for you before you had children is not going to be the diet that works for you after you had children. The diet that worked for you before you ran into that very difficult four-month stint at work where you were going crazy and sleep-deprived may not be the diet you need after that. This is how complicated it is, but we can teach people this process and once they learn the process, then they can repeat it to find the right diet over and over and over again, rather than constantly trying to find the right diet by saying, oh, Mark Hyman wrote a new book. Let's give him that. Give them that diet. Mm -hmm. That to me does not work. It's just playing an old, tired game that never solves the issue. Yeah. And I, I 
couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think I really appreciate the way that you laid that out. We've I've always wanted to write like the anti-diet book <laughs> or the yeah. diet diet book. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think also, you know, we've talked about and, and you've heard this phrase many times where it's difficult just trying to get patients to listen to their body as far as mm. in response to what they eat, just their, your body will tell you. But the way that you laid that out into sort of let's break it down into these different criteria. And this is how you begin to listen to your body. I think it's super important and, and helpful in translating people who might not be as in tune that way. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's funny, right? I think as clinicians, part of what I think we sometimes miss is that we have to be teachers. So we have to speak that language. So I, you know, I talk about, I can, I can talk to you two and everyone listening to this and say, I'm an integrative endocrinologist. Mm -hmm. I say that to a lay person, they have no idea. I can say to you all, well, we're really, what we're really measuring when we're measuring uh, hunger, energy, and cravings. We're measuring things like leptin and incretins, like GIP and GLP and, you know, PYY and insulin uh, resistance or sensitivity in the brain, et cetera. But when I'm talking to a patient, I simply say hunger, energy, and cravings. This is all you need to know to know whether your hormones are in balance because hormones are in directly impacting these things. And so in a sense, if I'm going to get objective evaluations of hormones, which I should be, right, because mm -hmm. it helps us look under the hood, I need to really be getting subjective evaluations as well. Because we all know that, you know, without this, uh, we are not going to be able to uh, take and, and make sense sometimes of the laboratory measures that we're getting. So we always need to have a good clinical case. The issue, though, is we don't actually understand a lot of times how metabolism is working. For example, how many clinicians um, know and how many patients know that diet um, and exercise, the difference between the two, exercise has been shown conclusively to be relatively useless for weight loss. Yet, um, every clinician I know, most clinicians I know, um, most people working with people, most people out the lay public out there prioritize this as a weight loss aid. Now, it should be prioritized as a health aid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely useless for and, and I'm and I'm saying absolutely useless for weight loss. We now know that the metabolism does not work in an additive way. In other words, if Michael, Patty and I all go for a hike here in Asheville and burn 300 calories, we cannot add that to our resting metabolic rate the way we used to think. In fact, what ends up happening is our metabolism sees that 300 calorie burn, sees us going into calorie deficit and starts to constrain our basal metabolic rate, starts to constrain our non-exercise activity thermogenesis, starts to constrain energy everywhere else. And so what ends happening is that when we misunderstand this, we have, it's kind of like causing our patients and clients to be the dog chasing its tail. We have to know and be very clear on what works for weight loss, what works for just regulating metabolism, and which of these entities we need to approach. When it comes to weight loss in particular and fat loss, it is diet, diet, diet. And by the way, we get that extremely wrong as well. It's not exercise, exercise, exercise. And so it really is this sort of understanding. And by the way, when I when I tell everyone this, right, a lot of a lot of clinicians right now listening to this are probably confused. So I just want to say it one more time, because this is what we now know about metabolism. If you burn 2000 calories at rest, that's your BMR, your resting energy expenditure, and you go out and burn another 500 calories through exercise, you did not burn 2500 calories. You burn actually less than that because of what the metabolism does when it sees this gap in energy intake mm -hmm. and energy output open up. Mm -hmm. It goes, nope, 
I don't like that. And I'm going to constrain you back and it's going to start uh, budgeting energy use elsewhere. And so this is a brand new understanding about exercise. And also, by the way, exercise makes us extremely hungry. And so this is why we see time and time again, people going on marathon running programs and all the lots of this exercise. And we only see clinically about 20% of those people actually losing weight. The other 75%, 50% of them see no change whatsoever. And then we actually see 25% gaining weight. And this is why. And again, this comes down to understanding the language of metabolism. Interesting. So even as you're talking about trying to get some subjective and objective data, do you think there's any place or do you yourself use any of these wearable devices like CGM or HRV? Do you, do you use them when you're trying to teach metabolism to your patients? Absolutely. You use them because think about wearing um, a CGM or having an HRV measure, like something like the R ring or something like that, or the whoop device or whatever, and then being able to correlate heck hunger, energy and cravings or schmeck sleep, hunger, mood, energy and cravings with what you're seeing with the HRV or the CGM. Right. And so you'll start to see some of these curves. And so like I can I can then teach my client or patient and say, listen, see how you see on the CGM these peaks that, you know, the peak doesn't go up that high, but it does peak and then it falls versus these rolling hills or these long plateaus. Mm -hmm. When you see these long plateaus and you see these rolling hills with the CGM, this is telling us you're probably insulin resistant at the level of the muscle. We can correct that by getting you moving more, not necessarily exercising more, but moving more. Or see how this peak goes sky high, way, way above 140. Well, we really shouldn't see that. This means we're seeing some liver, some liver resistance, insulin resistance in the liver, which means you might benefit from cutting down your simple carbohydrates and things like that. And so it tells them an awful lot. It's one of those things where they can actually see hunger, energy and cravings. Right. So see these rolling hills and see how you are you know, essentially craving things or see at this this huge peak and then how it falls below where you were before this is and you're getting cravings for sweets this is part of the reason and that makes a big difference it we've never had a tool um and and it will be great by the way i'm sure you guys would agree when we're when we're able to look at insulin levels mm -hmm. with cgm as, mm -hmm. as right. well right yeah. and right. be able to see triglycerides as well it'll be even better but we've never actually had a tool that allows us to see insulin resistance in the liver versus insulin resistance maybe in the muscle versus insulin resistance in the brain because remember these are these uh, insulin resistance occurs in different tissues yeah. at different rates it's not all one thing and so the cgm can begin to show you um some of that of course we're going to need more data to actually correlate if our clinical intuition is correct right it's always using you know using science to refine our approach so whether or not my intuition about these peaks and valleys and all this is correct will will need to you know sort of remain to be seen but this is always how we've done good work so the more tools we bring in the better giving uh, in terms of giving us a window into metabolism yeah awesome amazing uh, on your website jtita.com there's a significant amount of educational information and we know you to be a prolific writer but interestingly many of your blog posts are based in philosophy and we'd certainly have gotten a little bit of that sense yep. here based on our yep. conversation <laughs> i mean you even refer your, refer to yourself as a meathead philosopher so <laughs> where did this interest <laughs> in philosophy come from like how how does this influence your day-to-day -day interactions and teachings yeah, well, you know, it's funny that that, you know, like, it's so funny that that coin, I, I like that term because someone actually told me that once they're just like, you know, you, you're just a, 
you're just a weird guy. I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, you look like you beat me up, but like, you're so deep. And yep. like, you, they're like, you're like a meathead. You're the meathead philosopher. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to use that. So, I mean, here's an interesting thing. And, and thank you, by the way, Michael, for saying that and recognizing that, because I feel like um, the reason we do this, right? All of us, everyone listening to this, the reason we do this work, we sometimes forget about this because we get into the minutia of the doing and we get into the need for money and all the different things that we humans must do, the different jobs. But when it comes down to it, we go back and we see why are we doing what we are doing? Like, why are the three of us talking right now? Mm -hmm. We're doing it because we feel on some deep level in our hearts that this is how we contribute to the world. Now, as we do that, though, the world, and this is Buddhism 101, right? The world is, the, the, the Buddhists say life is suffering, life is dukkha, which translates in, into discomfort or challenge or suffering. And so while we're doing our work, we then must suffer. Now, of course, when we are doing purpose-driven work, the suffering is much less. But what I have discovered in myself and most of my patients is that there is one thing above all else that shields them from everything that will come. Because I know as a clinician, I'm not going to save them from some of their illness. Some of them are going to get cancer and die. Mm -hmm. Some of them are going to get heart attacks and die. Some of them are going, they're going to have to watch their family die. We're all going to go through this. And the one thing that I've seen very clearly is that a deep purpose shields you from this, even the scariest things in life. And so then I told myself, um, and both for my own allaying my own fear and beginning to allay the fear of my patients and, and uh, you know clients, is that a good philosophy is a philosophy that saves you from the fear of suffering. Because if we suffer, we suffer doubly when we are afraid of the suffering or we resist the suffering and a, a philosophy when you start to study philosophy any good philosophy teaches you that this is useful how can i use this pain to grow and get better this goes back into the next level human philosophy what life in my mind is about is using all your suffering to allay the suffering of others which is why the three of us are here which is probably why everybody who's listening to this podcast right now if you really go back you go, I know I suffer and I feel that deeply in all the different ways we've suffered, loss of love, loss of life, loss of health, um, all of this stuff. In the end, when I suffer, it makes me want to ease your suffering. And in that, I transcend suffering itself. Philosophy and a good philosophy is essentially what teaches that. It's the very reason we're doing what we're doing. And that's why I think it's so important because to me, it is the ultimate healing principle. I love that. To be honest, Jade, I've been on your website. I think I've read every single blog you've ever written. And I've learned so much philosophy just being on your website and watching your videos. So we're very grateful for that. And it's such a great perspective. Um, and just to kind of pull into that. So this past year has been kind of crazy, right? We're in a pandemic. Lockdowns have limited our social interactions and has contributed to some really unhealthy lifestyle choices. So in this past year and dealing with your patients and your clients, what aspects of health do you think have been most impactive and what are the strategies that you use to try to improve some of those? Yeah, well, this, this is, uh, I don't know how you all feel, everyone listening to this, but I have um, 
watched, uh, and it goes, this is a great sort of segue, I think. This question speaks to the last question. Mm -hmm. Because what I have actually seen is the lack of a good philosophy and the lack of a strong purpose absolutely making crazy time. Mm -hmm. People are scared. People are arguing. They become polarized. What happens when we get stressed is we go what I call, there's a next level human, but there's also what I call the base level human. And the base level human is our lizard brain self. Right. It's the self that craves, craves stability and certainty. And it's the one that wants power because if you have power, you can have certainty and stability. And so when I see what has really happened here, I see that the sickness of our head is really what we are actually seeing. To me, the real pandemic is the pandemic of lack of purpose. And we're seeing it. We see people running scared. We see people attacking. We see people making it only about themselves. We see people with an inability to have separate conversations and turning science into politics. It yeah. is actually crazy time versus the people who are out there actually trying to make sense and serve. And you've seen this sort of very clearly. So the answer to my to this question for me is what I have seen is the pandemic of lack of purpose. I have seen the dysfunction of going base level. Now, by the way, this isn't a judgment, you know, because I go base level too, right? We all have these three types of humans in us, the base level human, which craves a sort of certainty and stability, the culture level human that craves status and popularity, and the next level human that craves purpose and growth. And to me, what I have seen is that this has illuminated this battle of these base level types and that pull, by the way, the culture level types easily get pulled. They get pulled in a particular direction. And so the base level human types, the fear mongering and, and the, the disinformation and the making things up just because you're afraid. And by the way, that's why we see all this kind of stuff. When you are afraid and you are in uncertain times, a base level human wants to close that loop. Sure. So mm -hmm. what they do to close that loop is they make stuff up. So if someone says, you know, some kind of conspiracy theory or gives any plausible, you know, sort of uh, explanation for anything, they will immediately glom onto that. And so there's a, in my mind, sort of a battle going on. Remember, we're an experience and an example for our fellow humans. And so as clinicians, especially, I find it irresponsible at best and I'll use strong language here, but I find it immoral at worst to be making things up, to be spreading misinformation. And I think this COVID crisis has illuminated this. Now, how are we going to heal our patients if we can't even heal our own brains and we can't even allay our own fear and actually say, I don't know. A next level human is uh, OK sitting in the space of I don't know. And there's going to be so much. I don't know about you two, but there's going to be so much that we don't know and will be corrected. That's the nature oh, yeah. of something yeah. like this. Yep. And so hopefully we get the lessons coming out of this for our health, because I do think it immediately is a key lesson for our health. If we can't get our mind right, the body cannot follow. I love that. I love the way that you frame that. I, I definitely have noticed that. And, and to to frame it in the way of a, a, a crisis of purpose is really interesting. And I, I don't know if you've noticed this too. I've also seen that there seems to be like a subsect of individuals who maybe through the, the suffering of this crisis have kind of pulled back and then reevaluated purpose to try to move through it. And so like that's to me seeing the silver lining of what something like this can offer people. 
Yeah, I think that I love that you say that because I think in, that's the that's the idea, right? Like, um, for example, I often tell my story, you know, in terms of my life. We all have embarrassing, you know, sort of stories, but I'll tell this just because it, it'll it'll sort of bring this full circle. In my midlife, I had an affair. I got divorced. I had a very dysfunctional relationship to honesty. Now, not everyone has that. For all I know, like that never was an issue for Michael and Patty. Perhaps they were they had a good relationship with honesty throughout because we all have our dysfunctions. Now, from that suffering, from my own dysfunction, I have a choice when everything falls apart. People might call it a midlife awakening or a midlife crisis. Rather, I call it a midlife awakening. I had the choice to go. I refuse to be this human. This is not who I want to be. And from that, I can grow. Religion or uh, honesty has now become a religion for me in a sense, partly because of my immorality. I found morality. This is partly how we humans grow. And by the way, when we have somebody out there that we can look at that has suffered, failed, uh, embarrassed themselves, we love as humans the redemption story. Mm. And when we and when we ourselves redeem ourselves internally, we also set an example for other people to do that. So from my perspective, what we need now more than ever in this COVID crisis is for practitioners to step up and essentially say, I am going to reevaluate sort of my um, inability to hold uncertainty and to talk about conspiracy or any of these things. And by the way, I'm not saying some of these conspiracies, maybe we'll find out they're true. But until <laughs> we do, it is immoral and irresponsible to uh, propagate them as true. Right. Mm -hmm. we, this is partly what's happening here. And so I do think there's an opportunity for us to grow as a community. I also think it's really interesting. And I think it's something that you always have to ask yourself when we talk about personal development. The first rule of personal development is self-awareness. One of the things we have to do is we have to sort of ask ourselves, why am I behaving this way? And why do alternative practitioners and integrative practitioners fall so prey to this stuff? I think it's because they were naturally drawn to integrative and alternative medicine because they were anti-convention. So their brain sort of looks for problems. Mm -hmm. I think as we grow, though, and become wise, we start to go, Within the conventional community, there are wonderful, wonderful tools, practices, things that we need that solve problems. And there are also a lot of dysfunction in that world. Same thing in the alternative and complementary medicine world. There's a lot of wonderful healing modalities and tools. And there's also a lot of stuff that we need to let go. And this is why we talk about being evidence-based individuals. It's not that the evidence tells us everything we need to know. But it keeps us from making things up. There is an art and a science to this, mm -hmm. but we can't just be all art. We have mm -hmm. to be science as well. And we can't just be all science. We have to be art as well. So what I would say to these practitioners is, is to we all need to reevaluate re this and get a little bit more wisdom and start to say, you know what? The truth is always somewhere in the middle. If I am going to be black and white and dogmatic, I oftentimes say, Bias and dogma are the parents of ignorance and arrogance. Mm -hmm. When you are biased and dogmatic in only one way, whether it's in diet or your approach or whatever, you're actually losing yourself in the process. That's a base level human state of being. So part of what I would say is we need to check ourselves. We need to evaluate ourselves and we need to step up and be better because we have a lot of people to heal. And if we're thinking black and white and scaring the crap out of ourselves, then we're setting an example to scare other people. And then we're, creating dysfunction everywhere we go versus being a beacon and a teacher and a light and being able to say, I don't know. And other people being able to be comfortable 
in the I don't know because we're comfortable in the I don't know. This is what I think we have to take on as individuals. That's amazing. I love that. Well, Dr. J, Tita, you are a beacon <laughs> and a yes, light. absolutely. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the courses you offer at jtita.com? Because I know people are going to be totally go excited to hear more. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, I just had a really interesting thing happen to me um, recently. Um, I think you may or may not know, but I, weirdly enough, given, you know, sort of my background looking like a big bald football guy. I, I have a specialized primarily in female hormones and female metabolism. That's been most of my uh, clientele. And one of the things that I've been seeing for years is um, many clinicians and practitioners uh, coming to me and personal trainers and chiropractors and people from all walks of the healthcare spectrum wanting to understand this information. And it's unfortunate, but I don't think that we all got a whole lot of this education in our uh, medical school training, nor do I think um, we got a lot, we get a lot of it in continuing education. And I've always been resistant to put this out because I I do honestly think women should be teaching this. And we do have lots of good quality women teaching this stuff as well. But I also go, um, this, this speaks to this idea that we're each individuals, that there are some people who can only get the message from me. Just like there are some people like, Patty, myself, Michael, all of you listening, we could all be teaching the same things in the exact same language, but there's just going to be certain people who just dig me and don't love Michael or love Michael and don't love Patty, et cetera. And so part of me took this on and essentially said, I'm going to begin teaching this to the people who want to hear it from me. Um, And I launched a first of its kind, I believe, certification in um, female endocrinology and metabolism, specifically geared towards weight loss so that clinicians and personal trainers and nutritionists can learn the new science of metabolism because unfortunately that's not being taught either. And then specifically apply it um, sort of to women. And so with your audience, that's probably one of the courses that I think they might be most interesting, uh, interested in. And also on the other side this year, I'm getting ready to launch a lot of the personal development brand of sort of what I'm doing. I've released a couple books with that and I'm getting ready to um, essentially build certifications in my unique philosophy around this as well. But um, jtita.com, if people want to keep up with that work, they can go there. And also I'm doing right now, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. It's a blessing and a curse, I guess. I get to teach. It's also not something I really want to necessarily be doing, but it's it's a nice place to be able to teach. And I think that those courses, uh, the self-development courses um, and the uh, stuff in metabolism is there for you. And by the way, one of my philosophies is, as I've done pretty well financially, I also believe that generosity is a big piece of what we should be doing. So I know not everyone's in the place to actually put the money into certifications, but I have these many of these trainings for free online on my um, website and uh, through links through Instagram for those of you who want to just get a taste of what I do without committing right away. Wow. Dr. Jade Tita, I cannot begin to unpack the profundity that was this interview. (laughs) But but before we let you go, we do have one last question, which I'm going to kick to Michael. Oh, yeah. So we do have, uh, you know, kind of a (laughs) oddball uh, Friday morning hijinks sort of question (laughs) for you. And the way that this sounds today is, do you have a favorite wild animal? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do. <laughs> this this immediately comes to mind, and it's the rhinoceros. And the, re- and the reason why it's the rhino is, number one, 
all my closest friends refer to me as a rhino. Wow. And, part, and partly is because I'm built like a rhino. I do have the big nose that you know, sort of sets me apart and the bald head. And then also one of the things they all joke about with me is they're just like, dude, when you get focused, you're kind of like a rhinoceros. Like, how do you write a book in a weekend? And how do you like just like focus on this stuff? So the rhino has kind of become my default, you know, sort of spirit animal. That's such a good answer, sir. Well, Dr. Tata, thank you so much for spending time with us. And we're going to encourage all of our listeners to go to your website, jtita.com, and to check out your podcast, Next Level Human, and all of these amazing books that you've written. And we're honored that you spent time with us today, Dr. Tita. Michael, Patty, thank you so much for your work. It's so important. I so appreciate you. And all of you listening, thank you for what you do. We, we need more of it. So I am honored to have been here. Thank, thank you. Thank you. OMG. Michael, I need to become a next level human. I need to lie down. <laughs> I'm rethinking my whole life. Exactly. And I'm also rethinking the rhinoceros. Everyone has had an immediate answer to that question. I know. Surprisingly, it's becoming a really good fireball question. And initially, to be honest, I wasn't crazy about it. But now I love it. The other thing I've been thinking about is that everyone's gone mammal except for Kian Vu. Hmm. That's such a good point. And I'm just waiting. Like, do we have a natural affinity to more mammals? Like, we're, we're emotionally closer to them? No. I'm just waiting for someone to be like, salamander. No, I'm telling you it's more because I don't think of those other things as wild animals. I think of, you know, the fact that they're in the wild, I think I get that confused. So I think most people go immediately to something wild, wild. But no, what I'm saying is when we asked least favorite wild animal, you went reptile. Right. And that's why I'm making this point. Like, I think we like mammals more than we like reptiles, more than we like arachnids. So this is like arachnids apologetics. That's where we're going here. Maybe they deserve it. Next time on The Lab Report, Wild Animals with David Attenborough. <laughs> lies. These are lies. We might as well call Neil deGrasse Tyson. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Are insects considered wild animals? Like ants or something? I mean, are they domesticated? Well, people have ant farms. I can't think of anything more horrifying <laughs> on this planet than an ant farm. Yeah, I think in a prior episode you said something about wanting ants off of the planet or something. Yeah, I still feel that way. I have an illogical hatred towards <laughs> ants. Not fair. <laughs>